We're still in the book of 2 Corinthians. This will probably be my last message in it. Uh, we've been studying it a little bit differently. We've been looking at themes that go throughout the book. Uh, first time we looked at it, we looked at the theme of uh, um, Paul's job description as a ministry. He was uh, challenged. Uh, his apostleship was challenged, and he defined what a minister was, a God-called minister, and what those duties were and what he was fulfilling. Uh, the second one was suffering. The last one was preaching the word. And uh, today we would like to look at uh, the subject of uh, our dependence on God. You know, it's funny, the world tells us that if we depend on God, we're weak. But uh, what Paul's telling us in this epistle is if we depend on God, we're actually wise. It takes someone wise. It's interesting, if you would look at just about any team sport, you can take the roughest, burliest ones like football and hockey and rugby, and they always scream, team, 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 you're nothing by yourself. But it's funny, if we go through life and we think we're nothing but ourselves, and we need God as a teammate, they call us weak. Even if you take the lesser, oh, physical sports, like soccer and basketball, those are still team sports. You know, Michael Jordan was nothing until he got teammates. So we do need others. We need God. So what I'd like to do is I would like to look at this particular subject as it goes through Second Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 4. And such trust we have through Christ to Godward, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God. So even in chapter 3, he says, you know, by myself I'm really nothing, and by yourself you're really nothing. Anything you have or will or will do that's profitable, it comes through your relationship with God and your dependency on God. Chapter 3, verse 6 and 7. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, had shined in our hearts to give the light of knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power of God, I'm sorry, that the power may be of God and not of us. Notice that any intelligence, any knowledge, any understanding, any wisdom we have that's going to do us any good is not our own. It's one that God gave us. And then finally, in chapter 12, verse 9, Paul, my grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take in pleasure in infirmities and reproaches and necessities, in persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. In other words, when I'm in these trials, that's when I lean on God the most. <clears throat> I want to share a story with you that I think I've shared probably bits and pieces over the years. But uh, I was challenged in my faith once upon a time by a college professor, and I want to kind of give that background because this challenge happened to me in my late 30s. I was almost 40 years old. And it happened about 20, 25 years ago. And my point is, is if this happened 20 years ago, 
given what the culture has done in the last 20 years in our nation, can you imagine how much more the onslaught for college students is today as opposed to 20 years ago? <clears throat> my, most of you do know my story, but my call to the ministry was very, very unique. Most of you know that I spent nearly 20 years in finance and investment banking, and I had graduate and undergraduate degrees in finance, business, statistics, and mathematics. And then later on in life, I lost my first wife to cancer, and I'm left as a widower with three small boys, and I decide to go into education. So in my late 30s, almost 40, I go get a teaching degree, and I'm sitting in a classroom with a bunch of early 20s, mid-20s, full-time teachers that are going back to get a master's in education. And I'm the old guy in the room. I'm Pops. Okay? And we were sitting in this one class. It was an educational psychologist. It was a class I had to take. And just to put simply, he was a bully. And uh, he was challenging the students pretty aggressively. Now, in this degree I got, there were a lot of good people. The bullies were the exception, but they were sprinkled in. It was in downtown Atlanta. And in this particular case, he was challenging. And you can expect that. Now, I, I want you to consider it from my perspective, okay? Here I was, I was in my late 30s, almost 40. The teacher was about my age. And I think I had nearly as many letters after my name as he did. And I was used to working at the bank and research with PhDs in mathematics. So I wasn't in awe by PhDs because I knew they put their pants on one leg at a time like everybody else. So I was not intimidated by him. And I watched him get up there talking about raising and training children. And I knew he was not married or never had any kids. So I wasn't intimidated by him at all. And for him to say something about, you know, you're a pretty sharp guy. I'm surprised you need God as a crutch. Now, again, I'm in my late 30s, not intimidated by the man, but I'm trying to go back maybe 15 years when I was in my early 20s, like all the other 25, 30 classmates and he was bullying them, he didn't make it, I I wasn't too impressed. Because I want you to understand, my calling to the Lord, my coming around to Christ, happened well after my successes at the bank and well after those two degrees, the graduate and undergraduate degree in finance, my coming to the Lord was not a dumb emotional decision as the way I was raised up. It was completely contrary to the way I was raised up. And it was an intellectual, spiritual decision that God was moving in me. And in my late 20s, where it was a conscious decision saying, Christians are stronger than non-Christians. But yet the world is telling me, if you rely on God, you're weak. 
Now, this, to this day, I'm, I'm trying to encourage our young people right now, you will get challenged. <clears throat> and they will lie right to your teeth, telling you, don't worry, the government will take care of you. That's strong. But if you trust God to take care of you, that's weak. And I'm scratching my head, how's that going to work? Yes? Well, you need some help. Therapists are good. You're going to be strong to go to a therapist. If you use God as your counselor, that's weak. The writing of intellectuals like Freud, he's been around 100 years. Well, I got Proverbs that's been time-tested for 3,000 years, and I'm going to go with it. But Freud is strong. Proverbs is weak. Paul is going to spend a lot of time into this particular epistle talking about his dependency on God. And we need to understand our dependency on God. And the world's going to tell you to have that kind of dependency is on God. The answer is absolutely not. It's right the opposite. God knew we would need help in many ways. And that's what's all loaded up in 2 Corinthians. I'm going to tell one more story. <clears throat> Talking about the world, this happened a little more recently. As many of you know, Deborah and I, oh, I do want to share one thing. <clears throat> to me, it was interesting. Even though I'd spent the 20 years in investment banking <clears throat> and I did all those degrees in finance, my best richest education came from the customers of the trust department. I'm talking about men that I worked with that were setting up trusts for the children. These are men that started businesses and sold them for incredible amounts of money and were setting up trust accounts for their children. And I asked them what they did, how they did it, what was their decisions. I just pumped them. That was far more richer than any education I got sitting in a classroom. So, Deborah and I go into foster care. And unfortunately, 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 we had to go through the classes twice. Once in Georgia to get certified. And then when we came up here, we had to go through them again in Virginia to get certified. And I like to tell this story. I think some of you have heard it many times. <clears throat> but after we'd gone through, I don't know, it was eight or ten weeks of classes to be able to get certified to be a foster parent. On the very last day, what they had is they had this graduation party, and they put this great big banquet table up in front of everybody, and they put everybody sitting at this table talking about all the different phases in the fostering process through adoption. And they had the caseworkers, and they had the counselors, and they had the lawyers, and there was all these people, and there was a panel of sitting up there, about maybe about eight people. And they were introducing, they said, when you go into the fostering par process, you may be involved, and I just want you to see all these people at what part they are in there, just trying to give us a background. And I think I've shared this with you, but I said, after it was all done, they said, do you have any questions? And of course, me being a, me, okay, <laughs> I raised my hand. And I said, 
but you're all women. And they looked around. Yeah, so what? I said, oh, this girl right here, she's the one that tells 30 and 35-year-old men how to be a father? How old is she? Well, 24, but I've got my sociology degree and I'm going to night school and getting my master's. And besides that, my part-time, I'm a cheerleading coach and we just went to the finals. And I said, I don't understand. You've got men that don't know how to be fathers, that never had a father, that have never seen a father, and you got this 24-year-old going to tell them how to be a father. I'll, I'll tell you what I'll do. I will have a men's class, and I'll do it for free. And they said, oh, no, no, we can't do that. Why? Because you can't talk about God on this government property. I'll do the classes at my church for free. Oh, no, 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 you can't do that. But, but don't you understand? To have the 24-year-old that's never been married, never have children, that's strength. You understand? And to have the Baptist preacher do it, that's weakness. To have the father of five that has taught hundreds, maybe even over a thousand high school students do it, that's weak. But have the cheerleading coach, that's strength. It just blows my mind, the world we live in, what's viewed. And, it, and the thing is, they say it's weak, but you know what? What they're doing is they're just switching the dependence from God to something else. They can't stand the dependence on God. So they call you weak, but they're trying to put your dependence on something else. From the very beginning, God said, it is not good for man to be alone. And to that I say, amen. Why? Because two is better than one. Just don't make that to God. Lord have mercy. Okay? So with that being said, in the culture we're living in, I want you to be very careful in looking at this. Okay? So let's go to Scripture. <clears throat> the first thing is, is every single child of God needs grace. Amen? Is there anybody out here that says, I don't need grace? Isn't that the most foolish thing you ever heard? Okay. And in 112, this, these are all references to 2 Corinthians. Truth and simplicity and godly sincerity, but by the grace of God. Where does truth come from? It comes from God. 8.1, to wit, the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. This church needs grace. Faith and utterance and knowledge and diligence and love and abounding in grace. 9.8, always sufficient in all things, all grace abounding in us. And then finally, 13.14, the closing one, the grace of God, the love of God, the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. We need that to live, to survive, to flourish, to have peace, to have comfort. 
It comes from the grace of God. So you think, I'm going to be independent? Good luck. We all need grace. And grace only comes from one place. It's by us earning it, right? No. It's unmerited favor. It comes from God. Thank you for jumping on that. If you said amen, I was going to be scared. Okay. Okay. All saints need the Holy Spirit. Okay? Now, we can ask for the Holy Spirit. Luke eleven twelve is talking about that. Lord, give me an extra ministry of the Holy Spirit. But you need to have the Holy Spirit to have enough sense to ask for the Holy Spirit. Okay? These are all 2 Corinthians 1, Given the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts... 3 3, written with the spirit of the living God, not in tables of stone, but in fleshly tables of the heart. 3 17, the Lord is that spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. 5 5, he hath wrought us in God and hath given us to us the earnest of the spirit, the down payment of the spirit, the, the renational parent. Y'all, we need the Holy Spirit. And we don't earn it, we don't merit it. We don't deserve it. It's given to us out of the loving kindness of God. You know, I could probably shut the Bible right now and call that a sermon and say, I prove to you we're, we're dependent on God, right? But we're still going on. Okay? Here's a couple of the verses we just did. I, I went, <clears throat> now, here, I got a quote here, and I don't do this very often. But there's a Presbyterian preacher, he's pretty, a pretty prolific writer, and his sermons are recorded. This is Timothy, Timothy Keller. And here's some things that were published in 2013, but he talked about one thing. These are really profound. I like the way he said this, and these were some of his comments on 2 Corinthians. The first comment says this, It is not God's intentions that we should be in ourselves adequate to our tasks. Rather, he wants that we should be inadequate. If we only accept the tasks we think are adapted to our powers, we are not responding to the call of God. Wow, think about that. He says, well, I can't do that. I don't have the gifts for that. Is that the way God works? He only asks you to do the things you're capable of doing. Sometimes he asks you the things you're not capable of doing. Why? Because you depend on him more. Okay? There's a second quote. It's even a tougher one. The church is always in crisis and always will be. Well, wait a second. Isn't one day we'll just get there and we say, we've arrived? There will always be difficulties, limitations, insoluble problems, lack of people and money, a menacing outlook, endless misunderstandings and misrepresentations. We are not only to do our work despite these things, they are precisely the conditions requisite for the doing of it. Wow. So it's not rosy? Why is it not rosy? Because then you'll think you did it. Amen? Okay, now those aren't scripture. I got plenty of scripture coming. 
But I think these are a good summary of the verses we're going to see coming up, okay? All right. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. Remember that? 1 Corinthians 15, 10. Well, here's some verses in 2 Corinthians. We read some of these earlier. 3, 5. We are not sufficient of ourselves to think anything of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. The excellency of the power may be of God, not of us. You kind of get the idea Paul's trying to take you out of the equation? 10.3, for we walk in the flesh. We do not war after the flesh. When we go to battle, you better not be relying on your fleshly gifts. You need your spiritual gifts. 10.9, we just read this one. My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. And then 13.4, for we are weak in him, but shall live with him by the power of God towards you. So when you get to the point, you realize, hey, I am weak, I'm worthless, I can't do it. That means you're in pretty good shape to take that first step and start doing it. Because when you're thinking the otherwise, you probably need to take back and take re-inventory. Okay? All right. All right. What I did is, I can't remember if it was last week or the week before, we did a little bit of homework in the book or the church of Corinth. And we went back to Acts 17 and 18 when the church was first planted. And I found it real interesting when I was reading that. I can't remember if it was last week or the week before, but whenever I was reading that, I realized how many times Paul depended on other people. Do you remember how many times he would go into a city? And remember, it says, as his custom was, the first place he would go and he'd go into a synagogue. He was going around the lip of the Aegean Sea. And he'd go into a new city. And when he'd show up in the city, he'd go to the synagogue. And he'd start preaching there. And a lot of times people get mad at him. And they'd get up in arms and they'd stir up the city. And they'd, they'd make chaos and riots. And there was all these men that stood up and ran interference for him. Let's look at some of these. In Acts 17, 6 through 9, when he went to Thessalonica, there was an uproar. And they took security of Jason, allowing Paul to escape. In 17.13-4, the Jews stirred up the people in Berea. And you know what? Some people stood in the way and they say, Paul, you get out the back door. 17.32-33, Greek scholars in Athens did not cleave to Paul, but Dionysius and Demarius. Sorry, I... Okay. They did. And then 18, 4 through 7, they rejected the Corinthian synagogue. He was rejected in the Corinthian synagogues, but Paul continued in the homes of Jason and Crispus. And then finally, when we get to 18, 12, and 17, the Jews resisted Paul in Corinth in Sothenes. You know what he was? He was a whipping boy. He stood on the steps, he faced the crowd, and Paul was making it out to the next town. What's my point? Paul did not plant the church by himself. He did not plant churches by himself. He was very dependent on other people. Right? Does that make Paul weaker? I don't think it does. Paul's ministry was assisted by many. 
In chapter 1 and verse 11, he was saying, Ye also helping together by prayer for us. Paul was in the fix, and he was preaching, and he was in trouble. And the people at Corinth knew he was in trouble. And he says, thank y'all. When I was going through those rough times, you were on your knees back in Corinth praying for me. I need the prayers of those I love, right? That's what it is. Eight, four through five. They of Macedonia gave of themselves to saints, to Paul and to his preaching companions. This was not a solo effort. Nine, one through two. As touching the ministering to the saints, your zeal hath provoked very many. In other words, when they, this church was so zealous that that witness helped Paul become a better preacher because when he got there, the ground was already laid. Preaching is not a one-person operation. And once you realize, hey, it's not of me, I need the brethren. It's not of me, I need God. You got half a chance of succeeding. But as soon as you go like Michael Jordan, and you might be averaging 40 points a game, never won a championship. It's not till his average started going down and he got the teammates that he started winning championships. He needs some teammates. And y'all, y'all need teammates too. The number one teammate is the Lord. We need that. Okay? He had fellow planners, Silas, Timothy, Aquila, and Priscilla, husband and wife team. He had fellow weeders and waterers. I know that's kind of silly. But you know, some plant, some water, some gather the harvest. Silvanus and Titus, all the saints. He had plenty of help. You know, one of my favorite chapters in the Bible, it's, it's really a strange chapter. It's the last chapter in Romans. It's chapter 16. It's nothing more than a great big long list of names. Okay? And Paul is telling about all the people that helped him along the way. It was Phoebe, the servant of the church, Aquila, the church that met in his house. And I'm really going to mess up some of these names because they're long and they've got about eight syllables. But you, you see these people? First fruits of Achaia. There was Mary who bestowed much labor. There was another one that was a fellow prisoner, beloved in the Lord, helper in Christ, approved in Christ, labor in the Christ, labored much in the Lord. Look at all these people that helped him along the way. Men and women. Husband and wife teams. Y'all preaching is not a one-person operation. As soon as you turn it into a one-operation, whether it be the preacher doing it from the top down or the people pushing it all up to the top, it's going to fall. It is a group effort. Okay? And Paul's preaching this. One of the... If you think... If you ever stop back and think of all the people you ever work for, and again, being in finance up in Michigan area and then later on for schools, you know, the best managers, whether in the finance sense or the best uh, principals in the um, uh, education sense, the heads of school, were the ones that gave you clear direction clear support and give you a wide lane to do what you needed to do. Those were the best ones. And, and, and you can look and you can see whether it be politicians or managers or teachers in the classroom or parents. Those micromanagers, those aren't good managers. 
But the other ones that are completely hands-off, they're not good managers either. God is right there in the middle. Okay? I got a question for you. Let's suppose, and this is part of Brother Brian's prayer, there's people on the outside, they're looking at us. And they, they see someone that's totally dependent on God. What does that look like from the outside? What does, what does that look like? Now, I know what television and the movies make Christians look like. They make us look like pathetic idiots. But what does it really look like according to Paul? Here's an introduction. 411, the life of Christ made manifest in our mortal flesh. What does that look like? When we walk, we walk as if we're following in Jesus' footsteps. What does that walk look like? No, we're not all single. No, we're not males in our early 30s. No, we're not all carpenters. What does that look like in the year 2022 in our modern life? When they see us, what exactly do they see us? How do they see Christ in our mortal flesh? What does that look like? 823, Titus. He was my fellow helper, a messenger of the church, and the glory of Christ. Titus was the glory of Christ. What exactly did Titus look like? How did he conduct himself? How did he behave himself? How did he walk in a way that when the world, people on the outside looking in, they saw Christ, they saw the glory of Christ. What did they see? What did they see? And then finally, 10, 1, by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I am base among you. Paul was saying, by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, he says, I actually lowered myself, I humbled myself in a way that showed the gentleness and the, and, the, and the meekness of Christ. What did that look like? There was some Corinthians, there was a remnant of the Corinthian church that said, saw Paul and the way he was conducting themselves, and they said, you're weak, Paul. In our opinion, what apostle looks like, you're not an apostle. And Paul wrote this epistle saying, yes, I am apostle. I'm doing exact, here's the job description that God gave me, and I'm doing all these responsibilities. What's that look like? What's that look like? Well, let's, let's go see. All right? <clears throat> okay. If we are in Christ, and Christ is in us, This is what it's going to look like. 2.15. For we are unto God a sweet savor of Christ. Well, that's what it looks like to God. 3.3. Ye are the epistle of Christ, not written with ink, but with the Spirit. Your walk is the epistle of Christ. Not this thing written in black and white ink on a piece of paper. Your lives are the epistle of Christ. What is that? 5.14. For the love of Christ constraineth us, 5.20, we are the ambassadors of Christ. We're getting a little bit more. 6.15, what concord hath Christ with Belial? We don't mingle ourselves with the world. We had some fun the other, I thought I had fun. I don't know if the guys did. We had a a little um, prayer session on Wednesday with the guys. And it was, the subject matter was walking with God. And I made this point, okay? And I, I used an example that is so obscure here in the United States right now. 
It's not in all countries, but it here is in the United States. In God's word, especially the Old Testament, God's principle was one man and one woman. And to that we say, amen, right? But there were plenty of kings and rich people that had more than one wife. And you know what? God never called it a sin. You know what I'd call it? I'd call it a stupido, but I wouldn't call it a sin, right? And then we get over here to the place where God's, and my point, my question was, if you think all there is to walking with God is obeying his commandments, do you think someone like Solomon was walking with God when he had a thousand wives? He wasn't breaking the law. And the answer is no, no. He was not walking in God's will. He was not walking according to God. So my point is, is think about this in terms of a biological child. You've got a biological child and they come up to you and say, Daddy, what's the rule? And you say, here's the rule, okay? This is the line. And you've got one child that goes right up to the line and gets as close as they can to get to the line without going over it, right? They might even dangle their foot over it, but I didn't touch, right? Kids never do that, do they? You never did that as a kid, did you? No. Is that walking with God? No. When you're walking with God, you don't run to the line, see how close you can get without going over. When you're walking with God, you don't even care where the line is. What you're asking is, where's God? And you run to God. That's what walking with God is. So the question is, is what do they see? They don't see people dangling and dancing in the gray. They see people running to Christ. Poor Josiah, he was there. He was the 13-year-old. I picked on him. I'm going to use the example. And the only reason I'm using the example, I could use the same thing with my son Lincoln when he was 15 years ago, and I could use the same thing when I was a child. <clears throat> my dad asked me to cut the grass. I knew what his standard was. I asked Lincoln to do a job. I knew what the standard was. Josiah, your father and your mother asked you to clean the room. You know what the standard is. Are you walking with God when you do just the minimum, just enough so you don't get yelled at? And the answer is no. Well, what does it look like to the person outside? Well, it means going above and beyond what you're asked to do. You know what else it means? It means going above and beyond without being asked to do it. Amen? Now parents in here are going, oh, yeah, that's right. But we got to go back to the time. We're, we're talking about a relationship with God, right? So are we walking with God when we go to the line? Are we walking with God when we, God when we do the minimum? Are we walking with God until we've got to be told three or four times? Clean your room. Clean your room. Did you hear me? I said clean your room. Oh, then you clean the room. Is that walking with God? The answer is no. Josiah, I'm picking on all of us. I'm not picking at you. I don't have a camera in your room. I don't know what's going on in your house. This is all make-believe stuff. You're sitting up here in the third row. I'm not going to scare you into the back row. 
This is all make-believe stuff. You got it? Okay. So what happens is, is if we are in God and God is in us, we're, we want to be closer to him. And the thing that I just don't get is, is after being on this planet for so long, I see people that push God, that, that try to dance in the gray, and I see the fruit of the, the results of that, and you know what? It's always chaos. And just from a practical stance, I said, why not just submit to his why not submit to those proverbs? They're 3,000 years old. They've been tried and tested by people in rural and urban areas. By people with PhDs, people without any incomes, males, females, third world, industrial countries. They've been tried by everybody and they've been found it true all the time. Why don't you just submit to them? I just, I don't get that part. Okay. We in him and he in us, this is what you experience when you run to Christ as opposed to run to the line and see how far you can go without dancing over, touching over. Our preaching led to your consolation and salvation whether we suffered or are comforted. In other words, Paul was preaching and it didn't matter if he was in a trial or in a non-trial. When he preached and people submitted to the world, the result was consolation and salvation. 2.10 for your sakes forgave I it in the person of Christ. There's forgiveness. 3, 4. And such trust we have through Christ to Godward. There's trust. 4, 6. To give the light of knowledge. There's knowledge. 8, 9. For your sakes he became poor that ye through his poverty might be spiritually rich. Those are the blessings of running to God. And the answer is, why don't we? I'm going to steal something from Brother Brian, okay? This is something Brother Brian made. I hope it's okay. It was wise. It was good. He said, let's, and I'm paraphrasing, so I I'm, I'm think I'm getting pretty close to the principle. Let's suppose you were taking some really hard class. How about nuclear physics, okay? And you took it all year long, and, and, and you struggled taking notes and you struggled during the lectures and you struggled during the homework and you struggled during the quizzes and finally there's the final exam and right at the very end someone gives you a book with all the answers to your final exam. He said, would you open it? Sure you'd open it, right? And he says, okay, you got this thing called life. And you know what? It's got all the answers. It's got all the answers. It's got answers how to work, how to be unmarried, how to raise children, how to run your finances. It's got all the answers. But there's a part of our flesh that says, we don't want it. I'll take the nuclear physics answers, but I don't want the answers to my life. So thank you, Brother Brian. I like that one. Next time I'll probably use it again, but I won't quote you and give you the credit. But that's the fruit of it. Amen? Okay. Notice these are the fruits. <clears throat> Here you go. One fourteen. We are your rejoicing, even ye all's in the days of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's hope and joy that comes through God's promises. 
5.10. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ receive the things done in his body. Yeah, I want the things done in his body, not the things done by my body. 5.19. God was in Christ, reconciled the world unto us, not imputing the trespasses unto them. That's what we have in Christ. 10.7. If any man trusts to himself that he is, in, that he is Christ, <coughs> let, himself, let him of himself think again. And then finally, 13.5. Know ye not your own selves, how that Christ, Jesus Christ, is in you. Jesus Christ is sitting on the judgment seat. He went to God and he reconciled to you, God. You are his, he bought you, and he is in you. Y'all, I want to walk before God. I want to walk after God. I want to walk in God. I want to walk with God. I am so dependent. So when that professor says, you know, I'm surprised, you're a pretty sharp guy. I don't know why you need religion as a crutch. You know what I said? God's not my crutch. He's my legs. I hope that's what we can say too. Amen? So, how do you like that title? Cutesy enough for you? Independence or capital I N space dependence. Independence or two words, independence. I want to be independence with God because it's wise it's strong and to do anything else to me is just foolishness don't let anyone intimidate you